Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today I am joined by my friend Derek Jensen. He was here last year. He's back again. Derek is the author of more than 25 books, most recently, Marijuana, a love story. <laughs> it sounds romantic, Derek. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. I feel like we're just a couple of uh, wisdom lovers, a couple of philosophers, each doing it in our own way, and I appreciate your philosophy of life. Um, would you like to say a little bit about the book? I was just We were talking... And I found I didn't realize that it came out. I knew that you were working on it because we have a mutual connection, Kathy Fitzgerald, who uh, mentioned to me that you you might be coming out with this, but I didn't know when. And so I, I didn't get a chance to read it yet. Would you like to say anything about it to start off? Sure. Um, the the book was is really about how marijuana legalization has been a disaster for marijuana culture and for communities in the Emerald Triangle, and for uh, you know, it, it, when 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 they were pushing legalization, I, I remember flipping through the channels with my mom one night watching television many years ago, and uh, there was oh gosh the the Mexican president I can't remember his name uh, Vicente Fox was on he was saying legalization will be great because it will uh, take the money out of the hands of cartels and put it into honest business people. And I remember when I saw that, I was thinking, that's not, uh, I mean, sure, there are cartels involved, but um, the, um, the illegal marijuana growing and distributing scene was really, you know, you and I can have a philosophical discussion about the American dream and the problems with it, but it was really the American dream because you could get started with, to do an indoor grow, you could get started with a nice grow. You could start with maybe 10,000 bucks. And most people can borrow that much from family and friends. This is, this is not like starting a, uh, you know, a restaurant or, or a large, a major business. Um, and you could be making a decent living and, trimmers there were a lot of single mothers who were trimmers because you could do it at home you could be interrupted by the children and you got a livable wage at that point uh trimming used to be 250 dollars a pound and that has completely collapsed everything has collapsed so basically what the book started to be about was an examination of a process that we've seen so many times of the destruction of cottage industry in favor of the centralization of of ownership. So by now, it's so like three owners or four owners own the majority of the um, marijuana output in Washington State. Same with Colorado. Um, California is pretty close to there. So when they when they actually passed legalization, I was talking to an attorney about this and said how much would it start how much would it cost to start a uh, a legal above ground dispensary and he said if you don't have $250,000 in cash don't even bother that's cash that's not even in a bank and so obviously 
you know, mom and pop can't do, are not going to be able to start that. And again, mom and pop could easily start. All you needed to become a marijuana grower was, like I said, if you're going to do indoor, maybe 10,000. If you're going to do outdoor, uh, you need a tiny piece of land or you need a friend to have a piece of land and you need some seeds and then some elbow grease and, um, or back, back, back grease to, you know, dig the stuff up anyway. Um, and if you want to be a distributor, all you need is a friend. All you used to need is a friend in Chicago, uh, a car that can make it there that has both taillights working and enough gas to go there and back. And I know people who started, um, their marijuana distributor work, um, with, they would take some marijuana on consignment. They would, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be a $400 investment for gas and hotel and food on the road. So again, you know, we can have a larger discussion of whether the American dream is any good, but as long as we're living within this capitalist system, this was like, I know a guy who was an independent mycologist. And I, I mean, can you imagine trying to make a living as an independent mycologist? And, um, and he did it because he grew marijuana. Marijuana supported most of the environmental movement here through the 90s. Um, this is not to say that there aren't. And, okay, so that's, that's sort of the thesis of the book. That's where it started. And then also, I have to say, I, I don't use drugs. I've never had alcohol. I don't drink any caffeine except when I'm trying to stay awake if I drive long distances. And uh, never used any illegal drug. And um, I remember the first time I tried marijuana because I was in some serious pain with the Crohn's disease. I was at a friend's house who uh, was a stoner. And I asked if they had anything for the pain, thinking they might give me a Vicodin or something. And she handed me a marijuana cookie. And this is going to mean nothing to people who have never done this. And this will mean a lot to people who have. I had no clue. Uh, she gave me an entire marijuana cookie for someone who has never been mind altered in any way. And um, I, oh, and then we drove somewhere. I got behind the wheel of a, of a, of a pickup and pretty soon I'm completely stoned out of my mind. I don't, I have to pull over and I'm completely dissociated. Uh, it was compl it was dreadful. I, I hated it. Now, that was on a Saturday and I sleep. And then Saturday night, I'm finally capable of driving home. But Sunday, I'm, I'm pretty stupid. And then Monday, I realized I haven't been in any pain for the last 48 hours. And wow. that was when I became an advocate for medical marijuana. Um, and so... That was my introduction. Just, again, I, I don't like the feeling of being stoned at all. And I understand some people do. Like I knew this one for the, for the book. I interviewed this woman who back in the seventies used to sell hash. And she said one time this guy, or uh, that she, she lived in a trailer park and she heard uh, police sirens and she was absolutely sure they were going to come to arrest her. So she ate her entire hash stash and, she said she spent the entire weekend clinging to the to her bed, hoping she wouldn't fly off into space. And she ended that story by saying, that was the best weekend of my life. Which so so some people really like that. I don't I don't really like it, but 
so I'm writing a book and, and then I tell all sorts of crazy stories like about this one woman who uh, you, you can't put money into the bank if you're if you're you know back in the, the illegal days. So we live in Northern California and she knew somebody who had uh, I think it was 120 acres of uh, second growth redwood that he'd gotten through growing and um, he said she could bury the money there buried it or she didn't bury it she put it beneath a log way back in the forest and she comes back six months later because she needs to get money it's a hundred thousand dollars her life savings and um she comes back and the money is scattered all over the ground because bears got into it and they didn't steal it and fortunately the the forest is so thick that it um none of it blew away um but it was it was all money so she was she sees it it's like oh my god what has happened to me there's there's, so there's lots of stories like that or lots of stories of of theft. It's, it's very interesting. You know, we can talk all we want about how we don't like cops, but in an underground market, a lot of trust is required and there is a lot of theft. Um, and uh, ways develop to try to uh, mitigate the theft. Um, that often include um, violence or threats of violence or having to walk away from losing a boatload of money because somebody ripped you off. It's, it's so, so I explore all that. I tell a whole ton of stories. Um, and then also I go into the ecological, not just ecological, but the social, sort of social and then also evolutionary history of marijuana. It's very interesting. So, one of the questions I asked in the book is, how is it that that we developed receptors for something that this plant produces like this? And it ends up that's the wrong question because it ends up that the endocannabinoid system in the body is like, I don't remember if it's three or 400 million years old. And marijuana is about... 36 or 39 million years old in terms of evolution. So the the truth is that the plant developed something to which we respond. It's not that our bodies developed something to which which the plant produced. And so I go into all that history. How did we first perhaps discover using it? Um, That the uses of, of both hemp and marijuana so, so separating, you know, hemp would be cloth, everything, sails, the, the ropes on the tall ships were all made of hemp. Um, so separating hemp use from, from sort of what began as ceremonial and soon turned into recreational use um, by smoking or filling an incense bowl with it and then covering your whole body with a tarp and inhaling the fumes. Um that was noted by, I don't remember who, it was some ancient Greek guy uh, was noting that about, I think, the Scythians or some some people living northeast of, of Greece. Um, so there's a long, long history with it. I go through all that. And what I was realizing, <clears throat> the reason it's called Marijuana Love Story is because I wanted to write it with the tone of a thriller. And I start off with, with I'm driving or I'm, I'm riding in a car and there's you know, six pounds or eight pounds of marijuana in the back and a cop pulls up behind us and I'm all nervous. And, you know, so it starts off with sort of 
that thriller tone. I wanted to write it like a thriller. But then I realized about three quarters of the way through that really it didn't have the tone of a thriller. It had the tone of a, of a, a romantic comedy. And I was using a lot of the sort of uh, cliches of the romantic comedy style. So I, I start off with completely mismatched pair, which is me and marijuana. You know, I've never drawn a, drawn a drug in my life. I don't like drugs. I don't like, I don't like that whole culture. Very. So we start off with, with the mismatched pair. And then we, and then for a time, I did second chapter. I start off talking about how for a time I was the worst grower in the world. So I'm completely inept, you know, and that's how the romantic comedy goes is that at least one of the partners partners is completely inept at, at the courtship. And then, and then over time, you know, I get to know, and I end up falling in love with the plant and the, 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 way the book ends is with just being in love with all of evolution and all of I mean it's extraordinary how how plants I mean it ends with I, I got some aphids on my on my plants and I couldn't get rid of them and I put the plants outside and within a few hours uh, wasps are showing up to eat the, the honeydew from the aphids. And then after a few hours more, after about a day, uh, all these tiny little black dots are on the leaves. And I look up at them under a magnifier, and they're tiny, tiny, tiny parasitoid wasps who lay eggs inside the aphids, and then they, <clears throat> they grow in there and they explode out like that scene in Alien. And and then also I go out at night and I see all these itty bitty little orange grubs and it ends up that that's a type of gnat. Those are lar gnat larvae, I believe, who, who do the same thing. They eat aphids. And what happened is the plant is sending out all these signals saying, hello, everybody, can you please come help us? 911, you know, I need some help. Um, got aphids all over. Please come eat them. Or maybe it's announcing a buffet. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know what exactly the message is, but it's sending out messages that are being received. I'd never seen these itty bitty uh, wasps before. And it's just, and then aphids are like, I'm making up the number again, but they're like 200 million years old. So I'm standing in front of this plant that has an evolutionary history that goes back 36 million or 39 million years. And then there are these, these aphids that go back, I think they emerged right after the dinosaurs. So however long ago that is. And I'm just sort of in awe at evolution and all the wonders of, and so that's where the book book ends with this. And that's why I call it a love story because it ends with, with just being in love with evolutionary processes and plants. And, and that's, and this is so true for so many growers. I know, I mean, I live in Northern California, so I know lots of growers and so true. Yeah. There are certainly growers who are only in this for the money. There are, all that, but there are so, I talked to so many growers who would just, they were profoundly, profoundly in love with the plant. And it's not because and a lot of them didn't even smoke, you know, it's just, and you can say the same thing. I mean, there are some people who just love tomato plants and some people who just love orchids and some people who love, um, you know, my mom loved house plants in general and flowering plants in general. And it's, it's the same thing. This is just, so it becomes just an opportunity. So, so two main things going on. One of them is uh, that the ability to make a living. Those, I, I interviewed one woman 
who said that uh, the thing she loved about this plant is it allowed her to stay home as a single mother and to make a decent living at home uh, with raising her child by herself. And that ability to do that is gone. Uh, prices have gone from uh, before Prop 215 in California, it was about 4000 a pound, and then it went down to 3000 a pound with Prop 215. And with legalization now, last year I was seeing some pot for 100 bucks a pound. And, I mean, it's just, it's there's no way. A lot of people said the break-even point for, for, for a small grower who doesn't have economies of scale is... 800 bucks a pound. Um, so what this really is, is it's, it's the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things is that the, and thanks for letting me talk about it. I haven't done many interviews on this. Um, the One of the interesting things about it is that illegalization, the, the pot being illegal, made a barrier to economies of scale because, you know, you can have a grow room in your, you know, in your garage or in some small area and nobody's going to notice, but you're not going to have entire city blocks of greenhouses. And there is at least a chance if you have this huge, you know, 50 acre grow outside or something that, uh, there's a chance the cops will see it and seize your, your operation. But now you can legally have entire city blocks and you can legally have large ones. And so, and we all know what economies of scale does to small growth. I mean, this is basically the story I'm telling on that part is the same story as the Luddites, you know, being put out of business by the early capitalists with their independent weaving. And then later it's the story of how big ag took over family farmers from the forties on up. It's a story of when the organic standards were put in place in the, in the, it's a really good analogy with the, organic standards because when the organic standards were put in place in the 90s just from the outside it's like yeah there should be standards this is great the problem is that in order to be certified as organic you had to go through certain processes that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and so big corporations are able to do that no problem some small you know 10 acre family farm or 15 acre family farm there's no way they can afford to just toss in a couple hundred thousand dollars to get certified. So it, it drove them out. I was actually on some working panels of family farmers and animal rights activists and environmentalists trying to figure out what to do about those standards. And we, we were all opposed to them, which is weird because you'd think we would be in favor of it. It's the same thing with the legalization. Yeah, who could be against? I mean, it's terrible that people have spent decades in prison because they have a plant. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. So we... It's, it's really analogous that on the surface, legalization is a great thing, but what it does really is the same as all these other stories. It's, it's the same story of independent bookstores being driven out by First Borders and Barnes & Noble and then Amazon. It's This is what capitalism does is slowly or not so slowly uh, drive the independence. It's, it's, the story of capitalism is a story of consolidation. So one story in the book is that. The other main story in the book is sort of me falling in love with the plant and talking about its history, talking about 
I go and, and because it's me, I go off in all sorts of directions. Like I, I go into a little history of smuggling. Some of the first documents uh, are some really old documents from ancient Mesopotamia are of uh, how 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 people could figure out how to smuggle tin to to get by the customs agents because even back then they would charge you when when you cross the the, the border when you come into the city so uh you know either a you can you can take the the back roads in which case you're going to run into bandits or b you can put the tin in your pants is what this ancient babylonian or ancient mesopotamian thing was was saying which is really interesting because of course that's one of the primary ways people smuggle stuff into prisons is is in their underwear so you know the more things change the more they stay the same anyway that's that's a quick overview of the book yeah, wow, that sounds delightful. And I I think it's so interesting. Well, I mean, for one thing, we're talking about this on uh, International Workers' Day, which people in the U.S. don't necessarily think of as related to unions. Um, in fact, it's just May 1st, right? That's okay, it's May 1st. And that was deliberate because the the what sparked really May 1st happened in Chicago, the Haymarket riot. But then there's this deliberate effort to, to cut us off from other workers, and you were just talking about, um, you know, this, this, you know, the way capitalism moves, and 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 the part of the issue in in Chicago in particular was, of course, Cyrus McCormick's plant to make making farm machinery. They had mechanized the ironworking, and the ironworkers' union were very powerful at the time, and so there was tension, and they had declared that May first was going to be. 1886 was supposed to be, that's it, we're going to have a law for an eight-hour work week, which we all take for granted now. We have no idea that unions really produce this result for us, that people were working, you know, 10 to 16 hours a day, six days a week, kids were working, and that the unions are really, and in fact, there's um, Richard Lewinton, uh, biologist, he argued that, you know, if you if you really weigh it, the biggest advances in human longevity are really due to unions, because for most things that people, there are two issues. One is that the dominant culture are, are, were kind of, we got dirty historically. So we had like a problem with basic hygiene. So he said, okay, once you put that in, then anything that normally you could get sick from, you could recover as long as you're not working 12 hours a day, six days a week. Otherwise, it was going to kill you. So the flu could kill you. Now you get the flu, you you stay home and, you know, you, and so... It's just interesting to think about that, but it's also interesting to think about how it cuts us off from, you know, this is the alienation that Marx is talking about. You're talking about the love affair with a plant, which you cannot get once you capitalize it. Once it turns into a capitalist enterprise, it's just an object, and it gets degraded along with the rest of the world. And this industrialized hemp, we don't even know what it is anymore, right? I mean, what, what is that? We don't have a relationship, and that's part of what it does. It alienates us from spiritual and ecological realities. We're, we're alienated from our own ability to love what we do. And to work in conditions of, I mean, you're mentioning people, of course, might have had a little grow room at home, and they could still have that intimate relationship with the plant. But a lot of people were able to grow outside, right? You know, to hide in the woods, you're, you're taking a hike, you're connected. It's one of the reasons why loggers want to fight for logging, because they're outside all day in the, in the woods. And whatever other issues we might have about how logging happens in the U.S., for sure, it's probably a lot better than a lot of other jobs where, you know, you just don't even get to have that connection and, and be able to tell yourself that you're doing something productive and so on. So there's like so many threads, I think, that are that you're, you're touching on. It's really beautiful. Well, thanks for saying that. And I would add that 
there's also a profound difference between for even even as, even for loggers there's a profound difference between working for warehouser which might have great uh benefits it might have you know health insurance and also being a small independent logger which means you're controlling you're in, i mean again i don't i am not i want to be clear i'm not valorizing the american dream as such it's just there is there is something about just running your own about being at least that much in charge of your own life right and and also one of the one of the things that i noticed happening as the years went by and and i talked to so many growers who also said the same thing is that when before before the price really started dropping you could run an inefficient quirky operation and you had the luxuries to to overpay your workers and you know we can you and i I, don't get mad at me for saying overpay you know it's like we can we can argue about whether such a thing as overpayment exists but the point is you didn't have to squeeze you didn't have to squeeze yourself you didn't have to squeeze the plants didn't have to squeeze anything you could play around yeah but then as the price drops it's like it has to become more efficient everything you have to sort of what is it what's his name taylor the tailorization process where you make everything highly efficient mm-hmm. um you had to do that and and i mean at some places there are now uh um just banks of of often migrant sometimes slave trimmers uh who are if they're slaves they're working for nothing if they're not they're working for 50 dollars a pound instead of the older 250 yeah and it used to be you know it used to be that if i if i somehow put the word out i needed a trimmer it's like it was they were difficult to find at you know 250 and you know as of last year if you put out an ad that you you're you're willing to pay 200 uh you know you'll be absolutely inundated with people wanting to do it because mm-hmm. you don't i mean that's that's you're throwing money away. It's the same deal there. That you could be quirky. You could be sure I'll pay you a lot and for the trimming. And now, I mean, and there's also machines that do it. It's this is that de de relationshiping of 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 everything yeah. that happens. That and and one of the points I want to really emphasize is it's it's inevitable under capitalism. It can't without without some sort of intervention, whether it's extremely strong anti-monopoly regulations or or illegalization, something to some barrier to this economies of scale. Do we need to mention, do we need to define economies of scale for listeners? Let's do that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a good idea. So basically, what economies of scale is, is, is the bigger your operation can be, the lower is your per unit cost in general. So if you are going to make one car by hand, it is going to probably cost you, you know, a million dollars to make one car. And if you're going to make 10 cars, you can probably drop the price to 100,000 a car. And if you're going to make a million cars, you've got the price down to 2,000 a car, whatever it is. I, I, I have no idea. But the point is, as you can make your operation bigger, generally your unit costs go down and there is no way 
I mean, this is what we saw with, I mean, this is what we see everywhere. Just you, you can't really argue with this logic. And so there has to be some sort of, I don't want to say artificial, but some sort of means of preventing that from happening if you want to allow cottage industries to happen. Yeah. Yeah, because capitalism is interested in not just the rate of profit. In fact, it's more interested in what we could call the mass. Because I could sell you, you I say, oh, yeah, I just sold uh, one unit of my widgets and I made uh, you know $100,000. How many are you going to sell this year? Um, two or three. Well, if oh. I sold a million of them right. at a dollar profit, that might look like a ridiculously low rate of profit. But the mass is there and capitalism is, is always interested in that mass. That's one of the reasons I think – Subtly, I don't know because I, I look at figures like Elon Musk as vehicles of capitalism. They, they are not making their own decision. The system is determining their behavior and their thoughts. And whenever yeah. he obsesses about population growth, I think there's a deep recognition that capitalism needs the human population to keep growing. It's one of the yep. reasons why we're having all this. Oh, we can't have this. Yeah, because you're worried about what you've created. This dependence on creating more consumers and manufacturing needs and, and, and cravings. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. There's one more thing. This is this is off that subject. I, I love what you're just saying, but something else that occurred to me I wish I would have said earlier is that another part that's really important is that quality will go down. Yes. And think about this. When was the last time you had a strawberry? By which I don't mean a thing that looks like a strawberry that tastes like cardboard, but a real strawberry. Yeah. And when was the last time? Have you had watermelons within the last, few, like, 10 years? They're horrible. Mm -hmm. I hate them. Yeah. I used to love watermelons. And it's just every watermelon you get in the grocery store is just every time. It's like, oh, I can't wait to open this. It is going to be so good. And then I open it. And it's like, why did I get this? It's just awful. Right. Peaches. You know, it doesn't matter. It's just, oh, my God. Have you ever had a – where are you? Are you in Southern California? I'm uh, just south of San Francisco, Maxareja, the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I guess you're a bit north for it, but you've had like real oranges, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. my God. It's yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and then I was, I've never liked tomatoes particularly. They're just sort of bland and everything. And then I was at the feed store one day, uh, six or seven years ago. And um, there was a little, they, they allowed a, a local farmer to put a, a table up with some homegrown tomatoes. Yeah. Homegrown heirloom tomatoes. Right. And, I'm like, what the heck? You know, I'll buy a couple. And I bought some. And like, why did anybody ever invent candy? This no. is one of the most delicious things I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. I all of a sudden understand why some people like tomatoes. Yeah. Because I'd never had. Oh, it's the same. I live in Northern California. And uh, until I moved here, I never understood what the big deal with berries is. It's like you buy berries in a store and it's just overpriced bucket of dreck yeah it's dreck. yeah no it's terrible and and um and there's a, a, a organic blueberry farm about uh, a mile that way yeah and every june or july i don't know when every every summer i go there and i get flats and flats and flats of them and then put them in the freezer and eat them all year yeah and they're it's just incredible Unbelievable. So it's yeah. the same thing with marijuana. Yes. That do people want there? There's they're increasingly making it uh, higher and higher THC. Um, but I interviewed or I talked to this one guy. I didn't interview. Him. I talked to this one guy who used to grow down by Santa Cruz, 
And he said that there would be different strains for every tiny little canyon because the uh, because the fog conditions are so changeable over a half a mile. Yep. So in this little canyon, you have to grow this strain because if you grow the strain that you grow over here, you'll end up the entire thing will mold. Yep. Um, Terroir. So that. What? Right? I mean, that's terroir in wine as well, you know, right? And that's, it's the same, and the same thing happened in wine. The, the, what people come, sometimes call it the Parkerization because of Robert Parker's influence, but you know, it's, it's the Walmartization of wine. Now it yep. doesn't matter where you are. We don't need terroir. We can grow the wine. We'll micro oxygenate. We'll add flavors. We'll add, you couldn't buy a bottle of wine from, from, from most of the wine that people are drinking. If they had to put the ingredients on the label, none of those labels would read grapes. There's always stuff that's being done. And that's just a fact that the industry, you know, recognizes. And, and they're forcing a flavor profile based on what critics like, not based on a person being in love with the grape, in love with the plant, and trying to, to work that alchemy to create something that's truly magical and feels like it came from somewhere and tastes like something. And I'm with you because I had, we, uh, I grew up in a rural area. We had uh, raspberry uh, bushes and I mean, there's just nothing like that. When I'm, I yes, for years I go to grocery. I would refuse to buy a raspberry at a grocery store now because it's just dumb. You you get burned too many times, and you think this is this is totally inedible. Yeah, it, and it's the same thing with marijuana. It's yeah. the same thing again. I guess the, one of the points I'm trying to get across is that this this book is really ultimately not about marijuana. It's about these processes mm. of the Walmartization of everything. Yeah, yeah, and. So we'll end up with, and so far, by the way, I just want to point out also that the price of retail marijuana has not dropped. Mm-hmm. It's all, everybody takes their bite in between. It's it's basically a transfer of wealth. That's yes. what the legalization of marijuana really is about. It's not about freeing the weed. It's not about freeing people who are in prison. It's really about a transfer of wealth from family farmers to governments and to those who are rich enough to, it's like, uh... I don't remember who it is, but there's some famous retired basketball player owns some owns a bunch of dispensaries. Olivia and John's daughter owns some. Uh, the Baldwin brothers own uh, uh, not the actor Baldwin brothers, but some Baldwin brothers in Hawaii who basically own Maui mm. uh, own most of the rights to grow on that island, and it's just it's just a transfer of wealth to the wealthy and to governments. Yeah. And interestingly, the governments are actually making less. Here's another thing. Sorry if I'm going on too long about this, but another thing that's just annoying me about this is that the, the, when it comes to every other thing besides marijuana, the governments seem to understand the multiplier effect. And what that is, is where if a Walmart comes into town, they say, okay, the Walmart's not going to have to pay any of these fees, and that's because they're going to hire all these workers, and then all the workers are going to be buying things, and that'll be sales tax. So we'll make it up in sales tax. That's called the multiplier effect. So I pay you, and then you pay your mechanic, and then your mechanic buys a, a ring for her boyfriend. You know, it's like whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's, that's the multiplier effect. And yet when it comes to marijuana, they have allowed entire cities, entire small cities, small communities to be cratered because they want this, these fees up front, these huge fees to start the business. And 
it's no, I don't think it's a coincidence. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's a coincidence that soon after legalization came to Northern California, a significant portion of the restaurants in this community closed. And I think that's, it, this is pre, by the way, this is pre COVID. So it wasn't people not eating dinner for COVID. And I think it's a combination of two things. One is I think some of these businesses were probably being used to launder money. And the other is that all of a sudden, one out of every five houses in Arcata was a grow house at one point. And that's a lot of money that is no longer coming into the community that people can no longer go out to, out to eat. And their right. workers can no longer go out to eat. Yeah. So a lot of the incomes for some of the counties up here has actually grossly decreased with not, not communal income, but the actual governmental revenue. Yeah. For the community has decreased, and it, um, it it pushes up the rents for all the other businesses, right? Because if you got somebody who's willing to rent all this space for because they're going to have a big grow operation, then suddenly they can push that they can push businesses right out and say, "Look, we'll give you you know we'll double the lease," you know. And, oh, okay, I mean it's definitely happened in 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 the Santa Cruz area that that you know people have been have had to go out of business just because rents are suddenly going to go up. And why is that? Because the grow operations putting in a bid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. A, definitely a transfer of wealth, and there, and 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 again, there is just this deep disconnect with spiritual and ecological realities. Very similar to what happened with bread. The story of bread, of the industrialization of bread, is that when they figured out how to produce bread at industrial scale, it, it they created these huge mills. They, they were just massive, massive things, and it pushed out all of the wheat germ. And they just, they actually thought this was a great deal because when wheat is milled traditionally, it's, it has a short shelf life because the wheat germ goes rancid. So people would, you know, only buy wheat, you know, if, in the ideal circumstance, you only buy wheat for a week or two, right? And you go get more at the miller. And all the wheat germ is pushed out. Now you've got a shelf stable product that you can ship anywhere. Now, after they had started making bread for a few years, the, they suddenly realized something was wrong with the flour. Everybody was getting rickets. Well, because they pushed out all the nutrients. So now you had a, a bread that didn't have any nutritional value. Now, if you were wise or sane, at least, you would say, okay, I guess we can't do that. The industrialization process clearly has some deep problems, some flaws in it. But that's not what people said. They said, well, look, just throw synthetic vitamins back into it. And that's why Wonder Bread and why all these cereals have all the synthetic vitamins added, because otherwise we'd have to confess we're selling you something that's completely useless, has no nutrient value, because we, we, the capitalistic process squeezed that out. That's that alienation again of what should be nourishing. And it's arguable that bread is, okay, maybe it's not even a good idea, because a lot of people argue like, yeah, bread is, you know, it has, there are problems, but we figured out how to eat it over the past 10,000 years. And, you know, it, it's not like it's, it should be the only thing you eat, but at least it was able to nourish people to a certain degree. So I think it's similar. And then when you look at what's happening in, in um, Wait, psychedelics. I'll real quick. I'll oh, yeah, real quick. Yeah. Which is that reminds me of uh, something Lewis Mumford said about the people who built the pyramids. So we, he said, you can say whatever you want about the conditions under which they worked, but at least they had fresh bread. Right. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm with you. And uh, but I was thinking also of how um, Peter Thiel's got this company where they, I mean, they actually filed for a patent on um, a, a, a compound that you know basically is like psilocybin, but they claim that it's that it's somehow unique and proprietary. And if you look at the patent application, 
And obviously, people in the patent office might not have anything. They might not have no idea. They might have no idea, pardon me, what it's like to take a psychedelic. But they have written in their patent application, I looked at this thing, that the, the person may lay on a couch and there may be muted lighting and there may be music. They put all these things in there that would be a normal part of a professional therapist-guided psychedelic session. And it's in their patent application, which means if, you know, if, if, if that actually gets accepted, then his company is going to be able to say, wait a second, what are you doing with muted lighting? That's ours. We've patented that when you're using psychedelics. I mean, it's ridiculous. So you have a mushroom that people could grow and could be in love with because maybe it, it has healing potential. I understand that's a very different thing than, than um, marijuana in a certain way, but these are still plant medicines and plant teachers that people love. And oh, they course. can have a relationship with, right? And see as a friend, as a teacher. Oh, I have a, I have a, I have a, a friend who, um, who sometimes gives me some, uh, now I'm, I said I've never taken any other drugs, but he sometimes gives me tiny, tiny, tiny doses or tiny, he gives me capsules with tiny, tiny doses of, of a, of some hallucinogenic mushroom. Like a microdose, and you mean? It's my, yeah, microdose. Microdose, yeah. And mm -hmm. and the reason that I mention that here when you say that is that he he grows them and then sends them to me, and I'm always like, look, can I throw you down a couple of bucks? Can I just you know pay you for the trouble of boxing this up and sending it to me? And he sends me these. It's it's very good. It's very positive. He sends me these outraged notes back saying, if I accepted money for this. The mushrooms would hate me. It's like I can't. I could never accept a dime for this because because I'm doing this because I love the mushroom and I don't want to put money associated with. And it's great. I mean, yeah. it's I'm so so. Yes, that he he embodies that relationship with yeah. the mushrooms. That he basically is a. Uh, I, I I don't want to use the negative connotations, but he's like a missionary for this mushroom. Yeah. In the in the best sense, he's a yes, yeah. he, he's a, he's a proselytizer. That mm -hmm. he just loves the mushroom. He has a wonderful decades long relationship with it, and uh, and also wants to share it, share the love of this mushroom, and share the mushroom's love with anybody who is uh, willing to uh, willing to enter that relationship and to. And he does not want to sully that in any way with commerce. Yeah. It's great. All right, Derek Jensen, final thoughts before we let you go this time. We're going to have you back. But what would you like to say? Well, I think the, the, the takeaway from this book is, for me, is that life is magnificent and that it is complex and that Another of the things that's lost in the capitalization, commercialization of everything is, you know, we talked about relationships and, you know, people having relationships with mushrooms, with plants, but there's something else too, which is relationship with an individual plant mm -hmm. and the recognition that this, this particular plant, not this particular strain, but this particular plant is a living being. Right. And is and its life is as valuable to it as yours is to you and mine is to me. And it's the same as true with the aphids. And it doesn't mean nobody ever dies. I mean, the aphids get, you know, eaten by ladybugs. And 
what it means though is that it's so easy in and necessary under the entire economic system to just talk about pounds of marijuana or 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 board feet of timber or tons of chicken or you know whatever tons of inedible berries and that's that's useful economically but it also is by definition destructive of relationship and one of the things i want for us to try to remember you know i, lo- I when i was younger i read i and thou by martin buber and it's basically how you can have two types of relationships i you and i it and he says we can't be i you always or we just explode you can't go to walmart and walk down the aisles and recognize that every single person is alive at every moment or you'll just you, you won't be able to you know buy your crappy berries and at the same time he says but if you're only in i it relationships you're not really uh, he would say a human being but i would extend it you're not a sentient being and we we forget all the time what i want people to remember is that the world is alive the world is wonderful and the world is full of all sorts of beings who are have entirely different evolutionary histories and entirely different experiences of the world and and it's it's all just beautiful and no i was not under the influence of pot when i thought of that but i could be <laughs> well that's a wonderful way to think though i really deeply appreciate that i appreciate your work my friend we'll let you go until next time thanks for being well, here i look forward to doing it again thank you so much your questions are always great all right take care and thanks to all of you for joining us for another delightful dialogue with derek jensen i always love to speak with him i enjoy his perspective his way of thinking about things and i hope you did too i also enjoy your perspective And I hope to hear from you if you have any insights or inspirations or questions, suggestions, stories, anything that came up in relation to the dialogue with Derek Jensen, please send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of your thoughts, comments, insights, reflections into a future contemplation, maybe a future dialogue with Derek Jensen. Looking forward to that. Until next time, my friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you, that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.